I said before, uh, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ the King. And sometimes people ask me, this Grant, you say that every single week. Who are the other teaching pastors at Christ the King? Well, we have an amazing team. We're blessed as a church, especially with this group of young guys that love the Bible. They love Jesus and love to teach it. So about a month ago, you met Pastor Fred Hartsuk, who is our middle school pastor. It was Fred's first time teaching. He did a fantastic job. Earlier this summer, you met Pastor Garrett Shelsta, who's the pastor of our young adult Ecclesia community. Did a fantastic job. You run into Pastor Todd King on a, on a fairly regular basis. Uh, Todd is the lead pastor here. Here at CTK Bellingham. I'm the teaching pastor here. And then, of course, we just kind of throw other people into the mix as we're going along. But this morning, uh, Pastor Brian Steele is going to come and bring the word to us. Pastor Brian is our high school pastor. He's also a newlywed, which is why he smiles all the time. All right? And uh, we're glad to have Brian with us. He loves the word. And so if you want to grab your program or your outline, or better yet, if you've got a Bible with you, Psalm 34 is where we're going to be. Let's welcome Pastor Brian as he comes to bring the word today. Bless you, buddy. Well, I want to uh, welcome you if I haven't met you before. And uh, last week, uh, I actually two weeks ago, returned from a mission trip to the island of Roatan, Honduras with 14 people from our high school youth group that we call DOXA. And Roatan is striking for two reasons. There's this contrast. On the one hand, it's, it's heartbreaking third world poverty. On the other hand, it's one of the most beautiful places that you could ever see in your lifetime. Here's a, here's a picture of the village of La Colonia that we work in. It's a, it's a shanty village of about 6,000 uh, 6, people. And they're not only some of the poorest of the poor, but they're, they're socially outcast and even vilified on the island because they're mostly from the mainland. And then you have the second side of it, and this is a picture uh, as you fly in, and it's a tropical paradise, the second biggest barrier reef in the world, and it's jaw-dropping beauty. And a few times a week, one of these cruise ships will pull into port, and the tourists will, will get out, and they'll, they'll quickly rush to one of the places, and they'll go to another one, and they'll go to another one, and then they rush back onto the boat. And it's possible, uh, if you're a cruise ship tourist, to to get a roadside view of the village of La Colonia. And you can look up and, and even have your heart moved a little bit by the poverty, but it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a shallow experience. It's also possible to take a taxi from that cruise boat to one of the beaches, and you could, you could look out over the water, and it's pretty, and you can even get a, a, a taste of, of the natural beauty, but that you're only there for a short time, and they have to rush back to the, to the boat. And both experiences, though, it's just a shallow little taste and overview of what the island has to offer. So for a mission trip, we're going deep. We're working in the village of La Colonia, and we're walking around where they walk, and we're meeting people, and we're working and building relationships with church partners, and we get to experience hope and generosity and hospitality alongside the obvious and difficult pain of the spiritual and material poverty that's there. We don't just stay on the roadside. In the same way, we're not just ankle deep in the water, but we're going into the reef, and we're swimming with the tangs and with the jellyfish and with the parrotfish, and we're experiencing the fullness and the depth of the beauty there. And the team members describe both experiences of the beauty and the, the relationships in La Colonia as is life-changing. 
But this contrast of shallow and deep is, is also the same thing with Scripture. Right? It's very possible to be like the cruise, the cruise tourists where you get up in the morning, you got your coffee, you have your two Eggo waffles, you read through a passage, and you might even have a little bit of the beauty of, of Scripture and even have your heart moved a little bit. But we can race through Scripture. But today we're going to we're going to go deep, and I want to encourage deep understanding of Scripture, not just blazing through. And we're going to continue today a sermon series that we call God Is by going deep into Psalm 34, and we're going to see that God is in the small. So I want to read the first nine verses of Psalm 34. This is, if you will, the brief glance, the overview, kind of the, the, an ankle-deep water just looking out over the psalm. And so would you turn in your outline or an app or open up your Bible? It's going to be on the screen as well. And we're going to read the first nine verses of Psalm 34 on this overview. And it says this, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. So this is a nice psalm, right? We're looking at it from the side. We're still in the shallows. We're, we're doing a quick drive-by, and it's a nice psalm, right? You might put some of this on a precious moments calendar, right, with the, the puppies with the big eyes, and it's a good psalm. And even some of you, may your hearts may have been touched even a little bit. But there's so much more below the surface, and it is so important that in order to experience the full impact of scripture you have to know the backstory it's so important and when you understand the backstory to psalm 34 this is going to go from precious moments calendar to like jaw dropping eyes open the story is so important the backstory is so important. So this was written by David very early in his life. And he gets anointed by the prophet Samuel, which means he's tapped on the shoulder to be the next king in line after King Saul. And it's strange that David would get anointed to become king because he's the youngest of his family. He's the runt. Would you raise your hand if you're the runt of the family? I'm sorry, <laughs> like you've probably experienced some of that. Um, he's the last in line. He shouldn't have been tapped as king, but he was. He's from Bethlehem, a small town in the middle of nowhere. He's a shepherd, so he's among the very lowest of the social class. But early in David's life, he has, things are actually going pretty good. So he gets anointed and tapped on the shoulder to be king. 
And then very soon off, he beats the Philistine giant Goliath against all odds, and he wins instant acclaim in the nation of Israel. By the way, Goliath is from the town of Gath. And it's important to remember the town Gath because we're going to come back around to that. But King Saul notices this young guy who's getting this early victory, and he takes David into his own court. And so now David is, backing, uh, is bouncing back and forth from his day job as shepherd to the palace and court of the king. And this is like the high school sophomore who's like washing cars on the used lot, and then the Apache helicopter shows up and flies him to the Oval Office like things are going pretty good for David. And then Saul puts David in charge of some of the armies, and then he starts racking up victory after victory on the field of battle. And the technical theological term for David's victory is he's kicking serious bahooki. <laughs> it's going good. David starts getting fame. People, L-O-V-E, David, right? Like his Twitter feed is exploding. The 12th man is showing up for David. He's on the box of kosher Wheaties. Like things are going really good. He's at the pinnacle of his life. His prospects are huge. His life is big. And this is probably when he writes Psalm 34, right? Can't you hear it? Things are going so great. I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And another victory in the battlefield. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Right? Nope. It's not when he writes the psalm. It's not a psalm for King in a palace because David falls. And raise your hand if you've been following World Cup at all, right? David falls harder than Brazil to Germany in the semifinals. <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's going from pinnacle to the very bottom very fast because what happens is King Saul walks up, wakes up one morning, he goes, hmm, where are my marbles? Anybody see my marbles? You got my marbles? You got my marbles? You know where my marbles? He loses his marbles. He goes crazy. He's insane with jealousy for David because people start singing this psalm or this song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And Saul goes crazy with jealousy. And the P.S. is that you need to watch out for ungodly jealousy because it will destroy relationships faster than Todd King can destroy a plate of bacon. <laughs> and Saul tries to kill David now. And he's throwing spears at this young man and David has to flee for his life. And where does David flee to? He flees to the town of Gath. Weird, right? You remember Goliath is from Gath? Why does David flee to Gath? I don't know. It's like if you slay the giant LeBron James, you don't flee to his hometown of Cleveland. But he does. Why? I don't know. And David gets captured by the enemy king of Gath. And he has to pretend to be insane in order to escape. And it said, the Bible says that in, in 1 Samuel that there's spit running down his beard, and he's pretending to be insane so he can escape Gath. He's fully humiliated. 
and he goes and he flees to a cave. The Bible says that in that cave, he's surrounded by those bitter in soul, in distress, in debt, and discontent. David is supposed to be in the palace as a king, but instead he's in a cave captain of the losers. And there's some 400 people, relatives and friends, that join him in that cave system, and it's cramped. And I don't know if you have a grandpa like my grandpa, but when I visited for a few days, when we go to their house, he would say this, right? Like fish and relatives are the same. They start to stink after three days. And this cave is not a party. This is not a good place to be. His life is seeming small and shrunk and compressed. And he's not a king in a palace. He's a king in a cave. He's at the very lowest part of his life. And this is when he writes Psalm 34. And I want you to put yourself in that cave with David. This is a picture of the cave of Adullam, where very likely uh, he and his band of 400 losers were hanging out. And I want you to imagine the conditions of living here. It's dark. You're hungry, rejected, you're fearful, you're surrounded by losers. There's probably the, the whining and complaining echoing off these cavern walls. You're cold, your body is sore from sleeping and sitting on rocks. The smells of body odor and maybe human waste burning your nostrils. This isn't a palace. He's a king in a cave. But it's important to know that God is fully present and powerful when your prospects seem small. And David is living life in the small. He was compressed to this confined space. But the question comes, like, where are you, God? Are you in the small? Are you in this cave with me? David was led to believe that God had big things for his life. He was anointed to be king. But he's in a cave. How small his prospects must have seemed. And you know there's times in your life where, where you feel like it should be expansive, but it, everything just shrinks down. And you've been in a cave. Is God in the small? When it seems that all the promises are just like a seed, tiny, inconsequential, overlooked, it doesn't seem like a big deal at all. Okay, we're, <laughs> we've left the shallows, right? Do you see how you can go deep into Scripture? We're not doing the overview. Now we're getting deep and we're going to go deeper. I'm a geologist also in addition to, to being a pastor. And, and when you're drilling in geology, if you want to study the ground, you're getting down hundreds of feet and, feet and you can get deep into Scripture. And so I'm going to bring you deeper into this. But doesn't the psalm take an entirely different meaning when you picture David writing this and singing it in the cave, I want you to close your eyes. 
I want you to put yourself in the cave, and I want you to hear the psalm again as if you're one of those bitter in soul and distress and discontent and in depth, and your body is sore and you're hungry and you're afraid, and I want you to hear David sing this psalm like he's singing it to you. David says, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And remember, this is the lowest point of his life. And yes, even at this time, God is worthy of praise. David sings on, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And he's looking around and he's seeing people that are humble. The only thing he has to boast about, though, is a promise. He's been utterly humiliated and stripped of everything. And David sings on, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. And he's speaking to the bitter in soul and the distressed, and he invites them to join in worship. And when you feel like your world is small and cramped down and compressed, sometimes it helps just to magnify the Lord and exalt his name. Because God's name is big and is worth magnifying when your world is small. David sings on, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And from one perspective, David hasn't been delivered from a single thing. He's in the worst of it. He's hiding in a cave. And you could argue that his fears are real. If he goes outside that cave and the enemy king sees him, he's dead. And more than that, there's lions and bears in this wilderness that would love to eat him like a snack. David sings on. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. And remember, they're in a cave. They're in the dark, and he's talking about their faces being radiant. And their faces probably were covered with shame. And you've seen that look before, right? The sunken eye sockets. Maybe you've looked in the mirror and you've seen that look. David sings on, This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And from one perspective, David's troubles weren't ending. They were only beginning and it was going to get worse and worse and worse and his troubles would mount but he sings on the angel of the Lord and camps around those who fear him and delivers them. And they might feel all alone in this cave, even maybe abandoned by God. He sings, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And very likely their food supply in this cave would be low and their mouths cracked and parched and foul-smelling. When you're not eating well, your breath starts to stink. And what tastes are they actually experiencing? But he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. David sings on, blessed is the man who takes refuge in them. And they're seeking refuge in the hollow of a rock. And he's saying the real refuge is God. And there's a promised blessing for those who hide themselves in the hollow and the hand of God. And he says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, 
for those who fear him have no lack. And David and his band of losers are lacking practically everything but stinky breath. But when David directs their healthy fear of the Lord upward, he says they're not lacking a thing. It's so important to see that God's kingdom is advanced through these small circumstances. David looked like nothing. He was insignificant, small, like a little mustard seed hiding in the ground. But from that cave of Agilom would spring the fullness of the kingdom of Israel. From the captain of losers comes the greatest king that Israel has ever known. Because David would go on to be king, and his kingdom did flourish. Okay, we're going to go even deeper now because there's, there's still yet more to this psalm. We're digging deeper. Because we want to fast forward a thousand years from David to the time of Jesus, and the parallels between David and Jesus are so interesting and really fascinating, and it adds another depth to this psalm. And Jesus is born from the tribe of Judah in the line of David. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the town of David. And Jesus is born the king of the Jews, like David is the king of the Jews. And Jesus, if you didn't know, was born in a cave. It wasn't a wooden stable. They kept their animals in caves, and Jesus was born in a cave. And can you imagine that? There's King Jesus, a baby in a cave. He's a king in the cave, like David was a king in the cave. And God was in the small of that cave where Jesus was born. And all of the hopes of the kingdom is wrapped up in that little baby. Like David, Jesus is nearly murdered by the existing king. You remember King Herod? And Jesus calls himself the good shepherd like David was a shepherd. And Jesus is also the captain of the losers. His disciples were primarily rejects. And practically everything about Jesus from the outside perspective was small. Born in the podunk town to parents who are teenagers and poor and no great highbrow education. And his disciples were largely working class rejects passed over by the big time rabbis. And they were marginalized. And some of the despised people of the town were Jesus' closest associates. And God was in the small of the circumstances of Jesus' apparently vanilla life. Because from this nobody, this Jesus from the podunk town, the entire kingdom of God springs. He was in the small. And I want you to remember, too, that this king of the Jews, Jesus, the son of David, was crucified and was put into another cave on his death in a sealed tomb. And in the quiet, in the dead calm, with the frozen body of that king in the cave, God was in that small. And he was working the entirety of the kingdom in that cave. It's really interesting, too, that Jesus himself is teaching that God's kingdom is 
fully active in the small and take just a little snippet of his kingdom teachings from Matthew. Because he says, the word of the kingdom is like a seed that gets planted in good soil. And he says, the kingdom is like yeast. Yeast is practically invisible. It gets worked into the dough. You can't even see it. It's small, but it's active and powerful. It says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. You can't see it, but it's invaluable and priceless. He says the kingdom is like a pearl. It's tiny. It's hidden in the mouth of a clam. It's exceedingly valuable. And he says the kingdom of heaven is like a tiny mustard seed that grows into the biggest tree of the garden. But if God is in the small then the small is hugely important. So I want to take you deeper now, even still, into Psalm 34, because there's more. And there's an entire history that's following David from his point in time to ours some 3,000 years. And this psalm is important and relevant throughout all of those 3,000 years. You see, later in David's life, God gives him a promise that one of his descendants is going to sit on a throne and rule forever in an eternal kingdom with the place for God's people in Israel. And it's a promise of peace, freedom from oppressors, rest from enemies, it's a promise that a house or a temple is going to be built for the name of God, that David's house and kingdom is going to rule forever, and that David's throne would be established forever. And it's called the Davidic Covenant. And it was a unilateral, unconditional promise given to David almost 3,000 years ago. And for a while, it would seem that this promise is actually coming to pass because uh, David does receive his throne. His kingdom is established, and there's an unprecedented period of prosperity and peace in the land of Israel in David's time. And then David's son Solomon even takes the throne, and the kingdom grows and grows and grows, seemingly for eternity. But then the wheels fall off the kingdom wagon. And David eventually dies. And I want you to picture David ascended to heaven with God and looking down as history unfolds, all the while he's holding on to his promise of an eternal kingdom. I want you to be with David as we unroll history of this kingdom. And what, when he left what seemed to be this vast expanding kingdom, through history, seems to be smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. The question is, is God in the small? And so be with David right now as he's witnessing history roll on. You see, Solomon, his son, takes the throne and thinks that his happiness is going to be found in maybe his 700th concubine. He allows idolatry to bloom in the kingdom and it all starts to fall apart, and the kingdom that seemed to be eternal suddenly looks very small and frail and vulnerable. And there's a series of unfaithful and wicked kings that rise to power in Israel. 
There's institution of temple prostitution and child sacrifice. There's a mingling of religions from the land. There's rampant idolatry. And so in 937 BC, the temple is, is ransacked by the Egyptians in judgment. The Assyrian king Sennacherib, who's possibly the closest thing in history to a living nightmare, attacks Jerusalem in 700 BC. And I want you to imagine David up there holding on to his promise saying, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Israel is taken into Babylonian captivity and there's the total destruction of the temple in 586 BC. There's a building of the second temple under Nehemiah 539 B.C. after Babylonian Empire falls and it would seem like maybe the kingdom is rising again and maybe David is going, yes. But then the temple is nearly completely destroyed in 332 B.C. when the Jews refused to acknowledge Alexander the Great as God. Antioch is for Epiphany comes to power, and in 167, he established what's called the abomination of desolation. He sets up an altar to Zeus in the temple of God and sacrifices a pig on the holiest of holies. The temple gets rebuilt by Herod in 20 B.C., and then Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, comes to earth and says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I'm picturing David going, finally, all right, we're in business. Now I'm getting my promise. But what happens to Jesus, the king of kings? He gets crucified. He raises from the dead he leaves earth, and there's only about 120 faithful followers in Jerusalem, but they're under the thumb of Roman rule. And it, doesn't it seem like just a handful of seeds that get scattered, and that's what Jesus did on earth? Just seeds. Small, insignificant. Doesn't seem like anything is happening there. Let's continue to go on. In 70 AD, the temple is destroyed by Nero. Uh, by Nero. In 135 AD begins what's called the diaspora, and the Jews are spread to four corners of the earth after a humiliating defeat by Hadrian, and Jerusalem is turned into a pagan city. 691 AD, the Al-Aqsa Islamic Mosque is planted directly on top of the temple site, and what's David thinking? He's holding on to his promise. The Holocaust in the 20th century, the slaughter of millions of Jews. Millions of Jews. In 1948, the Jewish state is created, and maybe David is saying, okay, 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 here it comes, the kingdom and the promise. But you read the paper today, and you look at the news. There's rocket attacks, and people are bunkering down right now. And what's David thinking when the prospects of the kingdom see very, seem very small? I can imagine him and hear him saying, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. 
And I want to make the connection to us right now. The question is, how can God's rule and reign extend in the small of my life, in the small of your life? And I want to talk to three different people that are probably in the audience. First, I want to talk to the cave dwellers. Psalm 34 is such a great psalm when you find yourself in the cave, when it seems like your entire world has shrunk down and your prospects are small, and you're in the cave when your job falls through. You're in the cave when the pregnancy doesn't reach full term. You're in the cave when the engagement gets called off. You're in the cave when all of your friends are going off to college and all you have are rejection letters. You're in the cave when you hear news of your friends in Israel hungry down. Your prospects seem dim, but I want you to know that God is in the small. The kingdom of God always starts small like a mustard seed and it expands. And God's work in your life, it might seem hidden and minuscule, but he wants to do something amazing in you and through you, even in this time when you're in the cave. I want to talk to the nine to fivers who are here today. You're doing your job day in, day out. You have a routine that's established. You might be bored out of your skull or maybe even like the routine. It seems like your life is small. I don't want you to miss the opportunity to be used by God to advance his rule and reign just where you are. You have the opportunity, like Jesus, to plant seeds of the kingdom, and some of them could find good soil and grow. Would you let your work be a form of worship? by doing what you do in Jesus' name for his glory. And sometimes God does work in big ways, but most often his kingdom is advanced through ordinary people in ordinary circumstances seeking to extend his rule and reign in work and school and the neighborhoods and the PTA meeting at the grocery store and the very small and the seemingly insignificant. I want to last talk to, uh, we'll call them politely, the cruise ship Bible readers. And if it's your habit to, to every once in a while pop open scripture and breeze through and get a little snapshot, I want to encourage you to go really deep. And I'm not leaving myself out of this, by the way. Like, I'm, uh, I'm just as guilty of this. So Psalm 34 is the psalm for my wife and I, for Katie and I. We've adopted it as our very own. And we didn't we even memorize this. And, and, but it was very long afterwards that I read this little note that begins a psalm. And open your Bible if you have Psalm 34. And there's a note at the top. And it says, a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away. And I skipped through that. <laughs> So many countless times, I never did the work to go back and read the backstory, and I missed so much of this psalm because I didn't understand the backstory. 
And I want to encourage deep reading into Scripture and do the work to understand historical context and background and who was the author and who were they writing to and what were the circumstances and what was happening politically at the time and what was the geography. And there's so many amazing tools for you. We are filthy rich with biblical resources at your fingertip. Buy a study Bible. Get the free online resources of Faith Life or Logos. Uh, talk to pastors who are here who would love to talk to you about Scripture. Get in a Bible study and study Scripture with other people. Please don't be just the cruise ship tourist who pops in really quick and then is out zipping in your busy life. The time that you spend going deeply in Scripture will be so rewarding. And the Bible seems small. It's paper in a book. It's just words on a page. But God is in this small. And there is massive life change to be found when you encounter God through his word. He wants to powerfully use the small in your life to advance his eternal kingdom through you. And I want to conclude with a quote from Revelation uh, chapter 11. And this is the very end of all of this history. And I want you to picture David hearing this promise. Because Revelation 11:15 says this, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall rule forever and ever and ever. And that man David will ultimately have his promise completely fulfilled. And God wants to use you to advance his rule and reign day by day in the small to reach that time. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your goodness and your mercy that you're present with us in the cave. You're present with us in the small. And you're fully powerful and active and merciful and just and loving in the smallest of circumstances. And your kingdom is available to us. Would you have mercy on us, Lord? Would you show your favor to us so that in our lives and the lives of people around us, we can be used by you to advance your rule and reign until the day when your kingdom is fully come and established and you'll reign forever and ever and ever. And we pray all of these things in the name of of Jesus, the King of Kings. Amen. 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 Thanks, Brian.